Good morning, good morning. It's good to see you guys today. If you are visiting, my name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad that you're here today. Um, thanks for worshiping with us. All right, so if you have your Bibles, you can pick those up and turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. It's good to see you guys this morning. Brother James, it's particularly good to see you this morning, sir. Amen. Amen. Praise God for taking care of you last week. Uh, for answered prayer. We prayed for you. We stopped service and prayed for you, actually. So we, we love you guys. And uh, anyway, so if you're unaware, Brother James had a, a heart attack last week. And uh, he is here today. So praise God for that. Amen. Amen. So we got us good. All right. So John 18. Last week, we finished up the what's kind of known as the upper room discourse. Now, it doesn't all take place in the upper room, but it begins there. And so uh, we finished up with Jesus's prayer. Uh, we looked at what we just kind of called the heart of Christ part two. He's praying for his people, but particularly he was praying for the future of his church. And the things he prayed there come to fruition or are coming to fruition or being, uh, being done even now in our midst and will be done in the future because of what we'll begin to see happening in John chapter 18, namely that he begin, this is the start of him giving his life for us. Amen? This is the start of the defeat of Satan. And so John chapter 18 um, is, is kind of a crucial text in the, in, the, in the beginning of this. It's going to set up the reason why Christ dies. And so um, over the next few weeks, what we'll see is his arrest, starting with today. We'll see his crucifixion next week. We'll see his burial, his resurrection on Easter morning. I don't think that's coincidence. That's cool how that worked out. Uh, and then some final interactions with his disciples before his ascension into heaven on the 28th. So we will finish John in April, Lord willing. Amen? Amen. All right. So I want us to remember before we get started that John has written these things, as he says in John chapter 20, so that you may see that Jesus, or believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that having believed in Him, you can find life in His name. And so that's our goal each time we open up John. really should be our goal each time we open up our Bibles, right? It's show me Christ. Show me how I can find life in His name this morning. And so uh, today, that's what we want to look at. Now, <clears throat> the, the truth behind that is, is that before Jesus becomes a life giver for us, we must understand that we need life. We, we must understand that we are in need of a Savior, that we are dead in our sins. And, and so this text that we read today begins to show us that. I think it reveals the world's guilt of sin. Uh, as we read the text, it's going to appear that Jesus is being put on trial. That, that it's Him who is under... Um, under uh, not only arrest, but under the, the trial of man, if you will. But if you look closely, if you'll pay attention as we read these several verses, you'll see that it's actually the world who is being put on trial by God. And so I want us to see that today as we read John 18. We're going to read the full chapter. It's a long narrative. It's a story. So let me read this story to you this morning, and then we'll move forward. <clears throat> When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, 
who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. They were expecting a fight. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, everybody say, knowing all, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now the interesting part, the, uh, part about the phrase, I am he, is he was added for our translation. He was added later on. What he says is, I am. How many of you remember God saying, I am? Tell them, I am has sent you when God is sending Moses uh, to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Right? This was... The, uh, the, the covenant-holding-making name for God in the Septuagint, the Old, Old Testament. And, and so we see Jesus here saying, I am. All right, And when He does, they, I mean, they just can't help but feel the power of God in such a way that they fall to the ground. And so He asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am He, so if you seek Me... Let these men go. This was to fulfill, to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. If you remember in his prayer, he, he, he says that to, to God. Will you, he's telling God, he's praying to God, you take care of them now that I won't be with them because of the ones that you've given me, the ones who are truly my disciples, I have lost not one of them. Amen? And so he's fulfilling that even hours later. Then Simon Peter, having a sword being our spirit animal, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. I added that part. Struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The first time y'all looked at the page, right? It's like, wait, what did it say? And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now in Luke, you'll see that Jesus also repairs uh, the soldier's ear. <laughs> Puts it back on for him. That was nice. So, Verse 12, the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So if you'll uh, remember back several chapters, I think it was around chapter 12, you see there that Caiaphas says, we should kill him because it will be good for the world uh, if this one man will die. Now, Caiaphas meant it that we can get rid of him and, and save ourselves an insurrection. We can stay in power and all will be well, right? So it's, it's okay for us to kill a fellow Jew if it's good for all of us. But what he didn't realize is that he was making a prophecy. He was prophesying that it will be good for the world for this one man to die, for Jesus to die. So here we see Caiaphas again. Um, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple since that disciple was known to the high priest. It's most likely John. He never mentions his own name in this gospel. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, verse 16, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who, watched, uh, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. 
Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, Jesus isn't saying that I never taught in, in private or outside of those places. He certainly taught things to his disciples, uh, but they were always things that were re reiterating or going deeper into the things which he was teeping, teaching openly. So what he's defending himself against is this idea that he's trying to stir something up, that he's trying to create a rebellion, if you will, that, that he's creating for himself his own little kingdom over here. He's saying, I'm not doing that. You've heard all that I've taught. Bring in all those people who've heard those things and ask them. They'll, they'll tell you. But they weren't interested in that, were they? And so he says, uh, da, da, da. when he said those things, one of the offers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Anybody else see red when they read that? Gosh, what evil. You know, as I, as I read through this, I'll just stop here for a moment. As I read through this, what, what I really begin to get a sense of is just the worldly actions, right? Just the, the over and again, even from the disciples, the, the not trusting the Lord, the not seeking His face, the not understanding what's going on. All of these people that we've seen so far were supposed to be religious people. And some of these people were even His disciples, were His people. And, and so in all of them, we see glimpses of the flesh. We see sin on display. I think that's worth noting. And so Jesus answered him. This is a great example of what it means to turn the other cheek. He said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Anybody remember when Peter, <laughs> Jesus was telling Peter that I'm, he was telling the disciples, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to go away. I'm gonna have to give my life. I'm gonna die. And Peter says, Oh no, I, I will, I will die with you. I will give my life for you. And Jesus tells him, I tell you this, that before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. Can you imagine what Peter felt when that rooster crowed in that moment? Just the, the heartache, the, the, yeah, the, the pain. And I think what's true of Peter in this would have been very true of us also. I think we see it in all the disciples. They all run and hide. They, they all get lost for a while. Jesus is essentially left alone. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Jews couldn't mingle with Gentiles under a covered roof. They had to remain in a courtyard or out in the open. Otherwise, it would defile them and they would be unclean. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. 
Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Again, if you'll recall in John, Jesus said twice that the Son of Man must be lifted up from the earth. And what that meant was that he would be lifted up on a cross in death. Well, the Jews and, the Ro- and, Rome, and Rome had this agreement as Rome was... Um, uh, had captured them and had taken them into captivity, that they would uh, put to death people. That was kind of the agreement Rome had in any uh, place that they dwelled in, that they would, they would kill people for you, probably to protect those who were trying to be loyal to Rome. So they said, it's not lawful for us to do this, but you can. So here he is. This was to fulfill, again, what the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do you say it, or did others say it to you about me? So there's two different kings of the Jews in view here as far as Christ is concerned. There's one king of the Jews in a messianic sense that Christ is King, that He's the Messiah. And so He asked, do you say this of your own accord? Do you believe that I am King? Or are you just saying this because others are saying that I'm creating myself to be or making myself King of the Jews and I'm going to cause this insurrection? And Pilate answered him, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be, be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And that is the end of our text today. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We ask now that you would help us to see Christ, that you would help us to find life in Him today. Father, thank You for sending Your Son into this world to be light, to reveal darkness in all of us so that we might be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I was reading through that this week, Jesus' words in John 10, 17 through 18 just begin to kind of swell up or uh, uh, just kind of dwell in my heart and my mind. And he says there, he says, for this reason, the father loves me. He says, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Over and over in these verses, we see the sovereign plan of God coming to fruition. We see the words, knowing all that would happen to Him. 
We see him say, I am, and the soldiers falling down, showing that he is God. We see the words, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, meaning that prophecy was being fulfilled. His word was being fulfilled. We see him say to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So we know that his death was from the Father. We'll get into that more in a moment. We see that the prophecy of Caiaphas, though he was unaware of it himself, is coming to fruition here also. We see Peter's denial, which had been earlier predicted by Jesus. Again, Jesus is, God is, ordering all of these events. We see that Jesus will be lifted up on a cross, as he had earlier said. And we see the cross as the purpose of Christ in the world. We see the divine plan of God for the redemption of mankind on display here. Clearly then, no one is taking the life of Christ in these verses. No one is taking it from Him. No one is forcing Him to do something that He's not willing to do. Rather, Jesus is, as He says in John 10, freely giving Himself by His own authority, laying down His own life so that He can take up His own life again, all by the authority which was given to Him by the Father. So what then does the text reveal for us? What does it show us about Christ? What does it show us about our own hearts? What does it show us about God's work in the world? In what ways do we see Jesus more clearly here so that we may find life in Him? Well, I think the first thing we see is that Jesus puts the world on trial by bearing witness to the truth. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Bearing witness to the truth. These verses are nothing short of a fulfillment of John 1, 9-18. I'll read that to you. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 16, For, the, uh, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. In those verses, we see that the light of God has come into the world through Christ the Son, and the world did not recognize Him. In many ways, the world still does not recognize Him. Even His own people, the Jews who had been taught from nearly the beginning of time to be watching for Him, to be looking for Him, knew all the signs better than anyone, could not see Him. Yet, Jesus reveals God to us. Now, the problem we see in our passage today is that the world doesn't recognize Him. That the people do not recognize Christ, do not recognize God. 
Not only does it not recognize him, it becomes hostile towards him. Here we have both Jews and Gentiles wanting him dead. Why? Because he's too perfect. But because he's revealing darkness in them. In many ways, it's like when someone points out a fault you have. Sometimes, if we don't handle constructive criticism well, we can get angry in those moments. We can get defensive in those moments. We can even become hostile in those moments. Well, imagine having all of your sins on full display in front of your face as you're dealing with the Son of God, and He's just revealing these things to you. You, you see it in His demeanor. You see it in His teachings. You, you begin to understand He's making a fool out of you in front of the masses. Now, He's doing it because He loves you. He wants you to see the truth. But all you can see is an insurrectionist and a, and a guy wanting to stir up rebellion. A guy wanting to dethrone you. You can begin to understand their hostility a little bit. He didn't come in the way that they thought He might come. In these verses, we see the truth of God's righteousness. In comparison, we see the world's unrighteousness. We see in the light of Christ, the darkness of the world here. We see that Jesus is the light. We see that the world is darkness. We see that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. We see that Jesus is, in fact, as He said in John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through Him. There can be no legitimate accusations made against Him. He was accused by the Jews for saying He is God, yet they couldn't disprove His words. His, his actions were godlike. They would look on him and say, What manner of man is this? What kind of guy is this? Who can do those things? But rather than lay their life down and follow him, they took up a sword. He's then given over to Rome to be put to death because the Jews are then trying to frame him, saying he's wanting to start a rebellion against Caesar by calling himself the king of the Jews. He's wanting to become the most powerful person on earth. The Jewish leaders wanted him gone because they were afraid of him. They were afraid that he would be more powerful than them, or they knew that he was more powerful than them. The Jewish people wanted him gone because he didn't start a rebellion. He didn't establish the new kingdom on earth. As Jesus reveals, though, His kingdom is not of this world. He is a king in a messianic sense, but He is not a king in a rebellious sense. In Christ, God's kingdom has entered the world. In Christ, we see the kingdom of God before us even now as we sit in a church building with our brothers and sisters. This is a small piece of the kingdom of God which has been started since before the beginning of time and will find its end only God knows when. But there will come a day when all of us and all of our past brothers and sisters in Christ and all of our future brothers and sisters in Christ will dwell together in a new heaven and a new earth under the rule of Christ. 
He is a king. He is saving. He is redeeming. And He has come to make all things new in due time. And Jesus says, this is why I have entered the world. To bear witness to the truth. And Pilate asked, what is truth? The truth is that the world is guilty of sin. The truth is the world needs a Savior. The truth is, as Jesus says, that anyone who will believe those things and follow Him are people of the truth, that they hear His voice. Now, for the unbeliever, for the person who uh, is kind of questioning God or not sure about God, truth doesn't matter much. Now, in our unbelieving state, we will give the sense of truth matters to us. But in all reality, truth is often traded for something more convenient. Whether we're wrong or not doesn't matter. We want what we want. We want what the heart wants. That's our truth. That's our reality. And so we'll trade ourselves for that. We'll trade truth for that. For the believer, though, the truth of Jesus is everything. Everything. Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the late great Baptist preacher, God bless him, puts some flesh on this for us. He says this, I've just got to read it all to you. He says, of this verse, Christ is a king. He's a king by force of truth and a spiritual kingdom. For this purpose, He was born. For this cause, He came into the world. Our Lord, in effect, tells us that the truth of God is the preeminent characteristic of His kingdom and that His royal power over men's hearts is through the truth of God. He dealt not with fiction, but with facts. Not with trifles, but with infinite realities. He speaks not of opinions or views or speculations, but of infallible truths. Jesus is King in His people's souls because His preaching has set us at rest on points of boundless importance. He has not given us well-chiseled stones, but real bread. He goes on to say, there are a thousand things you may not know, and you will be little the worse for not knowing them. But if you do not know what Jesus has taught, it will not go well with you. If you are taught of the Lord Jesus, meaning you have learned about the Lord Jesus, you've given your life to the Lord Jesus, He says you will have rest for your cares, balm for your sorrows, and satisfaction for your desires. Jesus gives sinners who believe in Him the truths of God they need to know, the assurance of sin forgiven through His blood, Favor ensured by His righteousness and heaven secured by His eternal life. Praise God. That is the truth that Jesus brings into the world. It is for that purpose that He came. Jesus came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And for those who will believe in Him, there is no greater joy in the world than to find life in Him. I think the second thing we see here is that Jesus substitutes Himself for us by drinking the cup of God's wrath. You can write that down. Jesus substitutes Himself for us by drinking the cup of God's wrath. Verse 
When Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Uh, there, there, are, there ought to be something in our souls which lay, want to lay prostrate before the Lord for a little bit. What, what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is saying is nothing short of amazing. He's laying out before us that there is a cup of wrath from God waiting to be poured out on mankind and He is willing to drink it. And it's the cup which the Father gives to Him. I've always been amazed by Isaiah 53 when it says there, after we read about the brutal death of Jesus which is being prophesied, it says that it was the Father's will to crush His Son. I read that and I just am in awe that the Father would pour out wrath on His Son so that love could then be poured out on a rebellious humanity. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, don't stop him, please. I can almost now begin to understand Peter's denials. Like, holy cow, I thought I had it figured out. I was, I was going to go to war. <laughs> I was going to stop Judas. I was gonna, man, it was going to be me against them if it had to be, but I was going to let them know who's boss. And, and then Jesus looks at you and He essentially says, what are you doing? Have you not listened to a word I've been saying Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has for me? And in that moment, Peter has to be like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. How could I miss that? And so in some ways, Peter's probably following around and watching from the shadows. And sure, he doesn't want to be arrested. He doesn't want to be the next one. But in some ways, you have to think Peter's wondering, do I even know him? Am I even worthy of being called His disciple? It's speculation. But that might be where my heart would be if I were in that, in that situation. We, we know that Jesus is referring not only to His death, which is the cup that God has for Him, but He's also referring to the wrath. I mentioned that this, this cup of wrath that God has. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we see a cup of wrath that God is waiting to pour out on a Savior intended for humanity. But in Psalm 75, 8, we see, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. When, when a person then, because of this substitute who has drank the cup for us, when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, they receive Him as their Savior, and He becomes their substitute in, in receiving God's wrath. Every bit of it, even 
down to the dregs. Now, the dregs is, for those of you who have a glass of grape juice, right? A glass of wine. The dregs are the part, the, the, the little beady pieces down at the bottom of it that just sit there. That's the dregs. There is not one dreg left of God's wrath waiting to be poured out on His people. Do you understand that? That Jesus has drank it all down for us. Every ounce, every bit, every dreg of God's wrath, Jesus ingests on our behalf. Takes it into Himself so that you and I can go in freedom and in righteousness and live eternally with Him. This is the greatest news in the history of the world. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The payment that we all owe is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus, the one who would drink down to the dregs His wrath. Jesus came into the world for the purpose of salvation. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Now that will be a byproduct at some point on Judgment Day. But initially, the purpose of Christ in the world is salvation. This is what Jesus says in John 3.16-21. He says, He's speaking there. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Praise God! But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Holy cow, guys. So, if, if, if someone is not going to surrender their life to the Lord, if someone is not going to give themselves to the Lord in faith and follow Him, take up their cross, deny themselves, follow Jesus, then what they are saying, what we are saying even at times, is that we love the darkness more than the light. We would rather go play in the dark than enjoy the light of Christ. God help us. God help us. Help us not trade marvelous light for darkness. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Through faith in Christ, you can receive his salvation. But if you refuse to submit yourself to Christ, choosing to love the darkness rather than the light, then you will receive Condemnation on Judgment Day. It is important to remember that God loves the world. 
Absolutely. God loves humanity. And so He sends His Son to die. But it's also important to pay attention to the part of John 3.16 which, which says that only those who will believe in Him will be saved and have eternal life. And that all who refuse to believe in Him will perish. I think sometimes we really like the force God so loved the world that He gave His Son part, and we forget that it requires something of us. It's going to cost something. Believing in Christ costs you something. Namely, your love for the darkness. You cannot go on living in the darkness. You have to trade darkness for marvelous light. If you see the light as marvelous, this will not be much of a problem for you. But if you see your darkness as more important, more valuable than marvelous light, you're going to struggle with this. You may appear to know the Lord. You may say you know the Lord. You may do the Christianese thing of South Arkansas and act like you love the Lord. But if in your life there is nothing but a love for darkness and you know it's true, we don't have to point it out for you. I don't have to point it out for you. I see it in myself, a love for darkness. If there's a love for darkness and you will not submit to the light, you will not come into the light, you will not confess your need for a Savior, then you're as good as a whitewashed tomb, my friend. You look pretty on the outside, but you're dead on the inside and you need Jesus Christ to bring you light. I pray that you'll submit your life to Him. I beg of you to submit your life to Him. Don't go on loving darkness, please. Now some of you may ask, and, and, and it's not a terrible question, how can God love the world yet send people to hell? How can He say, for God so loved the world, gives His only Son, and yet there's this punishment for them? Well, because wrath is a characteristic of God's love. It's a characteristic of all of our love. When we love something so much, that if you violate that thing, if you hurt that thing, you go against that thing, you harm that thing, you will experience wrath. Some of us need think no further than our own children, our spouse. And so God looks at the Son and He says, I love the Son and I love the world and so I'm sending my Son into the world to be light in darkness. But if you're going to say you love the darkness more than you love the light, which is my Son, you will experience my wrath. You, you've earned my wrath. You've chosen my wrath. If God did not pour out His wrath on sin, then He would not be perfect in love. We, we could not call Him just. Anyone who rebels against God by shunning His Son, denying their need for a Savior, makes themselves an enemy of God and therefore subjects themselves to His wrath. But God sent His Son as a substitute for His wrath so that anyone who believes in Christ will be saved from hell and given eternal life in heaven. In the later 1600s, there was a theologian named John Flavel. You may know him as Flavel Flav, right? Just kidding. Bad joke. All right. Most of you are like, who's Flavel Flav? Anyway, or Flavor Flav. So, John Flavel wrote this picture of, the God, of, of God the Father talking with his dear son regarding the hopeless and sinless state 
that we are in. This has come, become to be known as the Father's bargain. Flavel says, Here you may suppose the Father to say when driving His bargain with Christ for you, the Father says, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ responds, O oh, my Father, such is my love too, and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them all the way down to the dregs, right? At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father responds, But my Son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. The Father, or the Son replies, Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Praise God for His Son, for sending His Son. Guys, we really need no look, look no further than the end of this text to see Barbas as an example of this great exchange that I just read in Scripture. At the end of verse 30, 38, he says, After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate comes back out. Because the Jews won't come into Gentile areas, right? So he's, he's having to go into Jesus, back out to them, into Jesus, back out to them. We'll see this more in the, the coming verses. He goes back out to the Jews and he says, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was... A robber, it says. Now, I find it ironic that Pilate, a pagan, wanted to release Jesus while the Jews, supposedly his people, wanted to kill him. I find it doubly ironic that Barabbas means son of the father. So the true son of the father is exchanged for Barabbas. Imagine that moment with me. Imagine you're Barabbas. You're a thief, an insurrectionist against Rome, a murderer. You are in prison awaiting your well-earned crucifixion. The hour has drawn near and you sit in waiting for the guard to come and get you and to take you out. 
You hear the crowds outside. They're getting louder. So loud that you can hear them now shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! You see the guard coming down the hall. He unlocks your cell. He escorts you out into the court. You know that your time has come. But against all odds, the guard looks at you and he says, you are free. Someone else has taken your place. At that moment, you make eye contact with him as he is being drug away to be beaten and to be hung on a cross in your place. Friends, the experience of Barabbas is all of ours. The truth is we're all thieves and murderers and and haters of God. We're guilty of sin and we deserve death. But God showed His mercy toward us by sending His own Son as a substitute. His own Son who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What a great exchange. What a great truth. We have cause to celebrate our substitute today. The one who drank the wrath of God on our behalf. Would you stand to your feet this morning?